0: Hi everyone, welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome guys. Today we're gonna to talk about growth marketing. With me, I have one of the leaders in the space, Matt Lerner, who's the founder of Start Core Strengths. He was also part of the 500 team of leading up the DistroDojo team. We're going to hear his entire story and also what he thinks about the role of growth marketer and in companies today. Welcome Matt. Hi Carlos. So, let's start off with what we always do, which is the very beginning, what you did in college, um, what you did,
1: what was your first job, and then how did you get into this space? All right. Um, So, in college I was a philosophy major and I think it wasn't until my second year, Parents Weekend, when I found out all the other philosophy majors had trust funds. And I was going to have to someday get a job that I realized that might not be, have been the best decision in hindsight. Uh, so I did a graduate degree in communication and somehow managed to convince somebody to hire me in a marketing job. Um, but during my summer job, I, I worked in a refinery every summer in Cleveland.
0: Like refinery, like a oil refinery? Oil
1: and hazardous waste. Nice. And, it, and it was hot. And those guys told me, you know, Matt, go back to school, get an education so you don't spend the rest of your life working in a place like this. And I think that was probably a better education than the philosophy degree, that summer job. But uh, anyway, so I did end up, um, you know, I was studying communication in graduate school. And you could see, this was 1994, you could see the world of communication was changing. People were sending email, the World Wide Web was about to come out. Like it was a revolution in communication. And I said I could sit here in this ivory tower and study it, or I could go be a part of it. So I moved to Silicon Valley, took a marketing job at a startup. Um, it died about nine months later. And then uh, I took a job with another startup and it, it died about six months later. You didn't, you had your actions had nothing to contribute towards their death, did it? No, I was like the new grad. Nice. I did not They didn't give me enough power to destroy their companies. That wouldn't come till later in the story. Nice. But um, yeah, third startup, we actually managed to turn it around and start getting some customers. And we sold the company to a company called Macromedia that was then later bought by Adobe. Um, took some time off, traveled a bit, which is unusual for Americans, um, came back and joined a company called PayPal in 2004. Uh, and you can imagine how that went. Uh, but I worked, you know, they just were growing. I mean, the time I was there, they grew about 15x in like the 11 years that I was there. So I, I did various marketing roles uh, throughout the company as they kind of grew from startup all the way into like big giant corporation, moved to the UK as part of that. Uh, to run their sort of SME B2B business in Europe, actually just in the UK. Um, yeah, and then I, I left to join 500 Startups, do early stage investments in the UK. And one of the things I found right away working with startups in Europe is that compared to startups in the Valley, most of them just don't know how to grow mm. quickly and they don't understand that sort of growth mindset and process. Mm. So, so let's...
0: I'm let pause it there because... I want to, knowing what we're going to get into growth in, in a second, I want to uh, focus a little bit on uh, your experience at PayPal and then how that became perhaps the foundation for what you use now, the playbook that you use now. So how long, how many years was it total uh, PayPal? At PayPal, 11 years. 11 years. And I mean, that that's a proper tenure. Um, yeah. If you had to summarize it to three points, like the key top three things that you learned at PayPal that you then used as a foundation for what has become, you know, your new company.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I think in the beginning, uh, it was really scrappy. We would just kind of think of stuff and go do it. And I guess I learned like whatever they might teach you in rule books and textbooks, is not the place to start. It's just sort of listen to your customers and think hard about the problem at a systems level and do stuff that makes sense. Um, so that was super important. Uh, The next thing, I mean, as I started advancing the organization, building teams, you know, I suddenly I I had to build a team and hire people and I hired badly uh, and pretty quickly learned that I need to start to learn to evaluate people. And that's, I mean, I don't need to tell you that's about one of the most important skills a leader can have in life. Um, And then in the late stage, I mean, these companies, these guys are making $10 billion a year. And so, and I was managing a big team, a medium-sized team, but... Figuring out the right answer was no longer particularly valuable. I had a bunch of bright people on my team who could. And getting the organization, to the whole organization to align the resources and move and do things became the the crux of my job. And I think in most organizations, when you get to a certain level, that is what leadership becomes, is as much about figuring out the right answer as getting the whole organization aligned to do it. So,
0: I want to play with that idea a little bit more because it's one area that is perhaps very linked to growth from a marketing point of view or from a sales point of view, but it starts with the people. And having worked at a company like PayPal, you, you were probably exposed to quite the the cutting edge of a company that scaled to a massive uh, size. I mean, there's not many companies you can point to that have scaled that, not only just locally, but and across a couple of products, but across a whole bunch of products and internationally. So if we, if we go to that um, and we focus on people, what is the key mindset, the key attribute that needs to be imbued into the people so that they collaborate and scale without falling apart? And then how does that translate into um, scaling it from an organizational point of view so that it, it gives the flexibility without stifling
1: growth? From, I think from PayPal on through my entire career, hiring and managing teams, working as an investor, You're constantly in this position where you need to evaluate people. And certainly from startups, it always does come back to the growth mindset, but that's kind of a fuzzy term. So I'll I'll kind of define it for you. And, you know, you get to the point where if you hear enough pitch meetings, you do enough interviews, you can really spot it pretty quickly. But this is people who are not particularly attached to their ideas or their worldview. People who are constantly taking in more information, assimilating it, recalculating, and they just tend to be obsessed with learning and putting themselves in new uncomfortable positions all the time to force themselves to keep learning more. So they tend to be a, this odd mix of humble and curious, but also very goal-driven and highly motivated. I mean, that's that's almost, um, that's almost putting
0: it back on the people and saying, you just have to hire the right people. Um, Cause those are habits or those are attributes that are intrinsic to someone, not necessarily ones that are easily picked up at the organizational level. So how, you know, it, I'm going to try to avoid you giving me the, 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 answer of like, well, you just have to hire the right people, which is fine. Like you, you inevitably do. Right. But the, the, the trick is how do you also foster that environment so that when the people are on the, on that border or are discovering who they are and what they want to be, that it, it fosters that in, in the mindset of the organization.
1: So how do you cause the people in your organization to behave with a growth mindset? In effect, yes. Okay. As a leader, I think it it all, people will do as you do, you know, do as you say, I say not as I do, well, people will do as you do. And you need to model that behavior. Uh, I think a great example of when I saw that at PayPal, uh, we were kind of late in our tenure and a chap named uh, Scott Thompson had been running it. And he came from Visa and he was very sort of, corporate and the place had just sort of I think lost its way in terms of listening to the customer. And then uh, a guy named David Marcus came in and became president and he had started a company and then sold it to PayPal. And he was much more of a startup type thinker. And in one of his first all hands meetings, uh, he was talking on stage and he was launching the PayPal here card reader. It was like a little thing you plug into your phone and he started talking about the mistakes he'd made. Really openly, you know, we chose the wrong part supplier and we compromised on this to save a few bucks and it didn't work and we had to recall all the devices and that's on me and that cost us this many million dollars and I won't do it again. And we're all making mistakes every day and it's going to be expensive if we make mistakes, but it's much more expensive if we don't talk about them. So, you know, we need to share our mistakes and learn from them. So, I think that was a, just a really good example of modeling that behavior. And then I think Ask a lot of questions, even questions that you think you know the answer to,
0: uh,
1: because people don't think as much when you tell them something as they do when you ask them a question. Mm. I'm going to
0: use, I know that you're not actively involved with the Distro Dojo team, but I'm going to borrow the term dojo for, for this question. The uh, The premise behind a dojo, for those of you not familiar with the dojo, is that it's where you train martial arts and the, the master of the dojo is called the sensei and in effect Matt Learner, you are the sensei. Um, of of the distro dojo and we talked um, about and we will be talking about what you did to train up people in the dojo from a growth mindset now one of the interesting things and and i don't know how much this is hearsay or whether it was um, historically accurate but apparently some of the old senseis would refuse students from being able to join the 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 dojo and he would they would leave the 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 student out in the rain or whatever until they had embarked on enough of the quest to want to be part of that dojo before they would ultimately admitted to it. And I'm curious of all the companies that you work with post PayPal via distro dojo right now uh, with your current venture, how many, how many of them have you either rejected flat out, or you knew that you were not going to be able to implement any of the growth marketing strategies because they didn't have that growth mindset.
1: So to, to get into this dojo, you had to qualify for an investment from 500 startups. Mm-hmm. So, already just by taking people through due diligence, we're rejecting 98% of the companies we work with. And if there's a, a founder who isn't open and humble and wanting to learn, isn't aware of some of their own blind spots, you know, we wouldn't invest in them. So, of course, they aren't going to end up in the dojo. And I would usually just ask founders, you know, what are your, priori- your number one and two priorities for the next six months? And if getting more customers wasn't one of those priorities, Well, I I can't imagine why they wouldn't be, but often they weren't. Um, So they wouldn't come in. But still, most people, when they come in, most companies don't realize they have no idea how to do marketing, that they have no idea who their customers are or what they're solving for. And sometimes they do, in fairness, but there's a lot of Dunning-Kruger effect. There's a lot of people who don't and don't realize it. And so a lot of the first week of the dojo was these exercises we constructed to humble the people in there. So we would ask them questions and give them challenges that would force them to examine what they know and what they're able about their customers and their business and about what they're able to do. And that was sort of like sending them out in the rain. This would open them up and get them into a place where they were eager to learn.
0: Yeah, but I guess what I'm trying to figure out is whether or not somebody can self-qualify. Am I ready for this? Am I? Do I have the right attributes? So that when I start embarking on a, a, a growth marketing campaign or when I start trying to engage my customer, that you can self-qualify whether you need to do more work. In the context of DistroDojo, you were doing the qualification. Your team was doing that qualification. And then you were putting them through exercise. A lot of the listeners won't be uh, having access to that. So
1: how would you encourage somebody to reflect on whether they have those attributes? Um, well, I'd, I'd work backwards and say, okay, well, what does success look like? And am I on the path to get there? So success looks like in a startup you have product market fit, and you're scaling that quickly through multiple repeatable channels with good unit economics. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at yourself and you you're not sure if you have product market fit, you don't. I mean that's that's another thing I learned at PayPal. I mean when you know you see those graphs go up into the right, you don't have to like look at the graph and wonder. So you know, if are you sure you have product market fit? If not. Are you doing lots of experiments really quickly to find it? Or are you building one giant bet and crossing your fingers and hoping that that's going to be it? And then if you do have product market fit, congratulations, but are you completely dependent on one channel to get customers? Are the unit economics on that channel? Okay. Is it predictable or reliable? Or do you have a playbook to sort of add adjacent ways to get customers, whether it's new geographies or new sources of traffic or, you know, new biz dev partnerships. So do you have a way multiple levers to increase that scale and if you don't do you have a systematic process to start hypothesizing testing levers and adding them to the mix yeah and does that answer your question
0: it does it does but it also it also is the foundation for our the the, the rest of our chat because i know a lot of the people who went through district Ojo and before they came in um, and the thing is that a lot of people probably have awareness of all these things it's not like the people that were engaged with you and were Currently, or your, your customers for your new venture, the, they're not, not aware of these things. They're not, not aware that they have a, a growth, uh, goal and that they want to work their way back. All these things are things that they would probably check off if you were given a checklist. The problem is that it wasn't at the caliber necessary or they weren't doing it the right way. So maybe this is a chance to sort of dig deeper, um, on the, on the website, um, uh, that, you know, the, since we're talking about Distro Dojo right now on, on the website of Distro Dojo, it, um, it says, the distro staff lead the program, kick your ass, closely track each company's OKRs, key metrics, and growth progress. And I'm curious as to what was being done wrong for the companies that had, you know, they had OKRs, they had metrics, they had growth ambitions, they had sales, they had channels. They were, they were experimenting because I know a lot of them and they were doing all those things. What were they doing wrong? What was it, a single top three things that companies were doing wrong in spite of having all the awareness of having
1: all the right tools? Have you ever heard of the Anna Karenina Principle? No. There's a line in the beginning of the book that says something to the effect of happy families are all alike, but each unhappy family is unhappy in its own special way. And I think, I mean, I could give you a list of of 20 things they're doing wrong. Do it. But (laughs) instead, let me tell you what right looks like, because when things are all aligned and they're working... It goes well. And I know this sounds like a, a cheesy transition into a sales pitch, but this is what the five core strengths are. Mm-hmm. Like the five things that a company really needs to have sorted out. Um, and and everything that goes wrong is, you know, either some variation of this or bigger startup problems like founder relations or something like that. But So the first one is the message, which is the proposition. You need to understand the thing you're doing for your customer, how you're helping them in their life. And you need to be able to talk about that, succinctly present that to the customer in the right place where the customer is looking for a solution to that problem at the right time. And in a way, because customers are going to give you like three seconds of their attention. So it needs to be exactly the right words or images or whatever to hook them in. So messages, number one, number two is metrics. You get what you measure. Um, and so I, honestly, you know, so there's companies who don't measure stuff and it's obvious and they know that that's bad the companies that really surprised me because these were super bright founders and they come in, but then we'd spend three weeks debating their metrics and they had these massive dashboards with all these complexity in it. And I realized they're completely overthinking it. And that's just as bad because if you're overthinking and debating every decision, not just your metrics, you know where that leads. So getting, finding the sort of rate limiting step in your startups growth for the next 90 days, not, you know, forever and just picking a point and focusing on it and measuring it correctly. And then, yeah, there's that focus. Any, if you take any of your big winners, so, sorry, number one is message, number two is metrics, number three is focus. If you take any of your big winners and look back, you'll see that in the end, like 10% of the stuff they did caused 90% of the growth, and 90% of the stuff they did ended up in hindsight being a waste of time. So the key is to not be random in that search, to be very guided and directed and be running tests and experiments, of hypotheses that will get you closer to finding that ten percent faster. Hmm. So focus is number three, um, and then process. So once you're running those experiments, the process is sort of the the drumbeat that keeps it all going. You've got it. It amazes me. You've got a prioritized backlog of growth experiments, prioritized by effort and impact. No, no product team would ever function without a prioritized backlog, and almost no marketing team actually has one. So you're doing that. And then you're running. You're saying, okay, we want to do this big, hard thing. What's the? But it's big and hard and takes a long time. So what's the riskiest assumption, and what's the quickest, easiest way we can test that one assumption first, before we really invest in building the feature or buying the TV commercial or whatever? So you follow this process. We have companies run on weekly sprints. Mm-hmm. and then of course the last thing is team uh, and growth mindset and the right people in the right roles, which mm-hmm. we talked about. So mm-hmm. if a company's off track, it's going to be. You know, one through five of those things in some combination. Mm. So maybe this is a good point to, to have you just talk about
0: what you're doing today. And then we'll, we'll come and revisit those five things and, and the key ideas behind them. So w- walk us through what
1: startup core strengths are. Sure. So I, the dojo was great fun. And it was great fun when we'd work with a company and they'd have success out of it. But we were literally working with them. You know, There was a team of five of us and we'd work hands-on with them for three months you know somewhere this is very intensive and first of all i mean it's a lot of work and it's not scalable second of all startups couldn't afford to have five experts working with them for three months Uh, and third of all startups just don't have the time so what i said is how can i take this and try to offer it to more european startups and scale it up because you know every most startups would really benefit from this so Playing with that, what I've, I'm working on now is basically I'm offering a lot of the content similar to what we had in the dojo, but it's kind of advanced from that as an online course, the Startup Course Strengths online course. And then as well with a few clients where necessary, we're doing these kind of light touch consulting engagements. So you go through this section on messages or metrics, and then we sit down and apply those lessons to your business. Uh, and basically the idea is to try to take people through that same journey you know, it starts with the diagnostic, you know, on these five things, where do you need the most help? And I'll guide you through the course and then hopefully taking them through the same journey and they come out the other side much, much better odds of winning. Yeah, and that sounds
0: great. And um, I, I forgot to mention, guys, that we have Diana, our new community manager on the podcast, and uh, she was keen to ask you a question about this. Hi. So yes, I was wondering about the hype of growth marketing. So the concept has been around for a while, but it seems like only after the book lean startup came out that everyone uh, talked about uh, efficiency and it kind of also influenced marketing. And uh, so I'm just wondering uh, what do you have to say about that?
1: Okay. So you're right. There's a lot of hype. I, um, I was, I was was invited to give a lecture at Stanford business school when I was back at PayPal. And the professor said, you know, if I say this, this lecture is about growth hacking, the students aren't going to turn up because, you know, the term has such derision. And I said, "Okay, then why don't we call it is growth hacking bullshit? And when we called it that, we had, of course, a packed house, mostly because they wanted to come in and debate with me. But call it whatever you want. If you look over the last 20 years, you know, you've got companies from Hotmail to Uber to Airbnb to PayPal to Ebay. They've become huge without advertising by ads, they've gotten huge without buying Facebook ads or billboards or having sales teams or being on store shelves or any of the sort of ways you think to grow a company. So call it, call it whatever you want, but there is definitely a process and a discipline there. And it helps that the books come out, the lean startup, but, and I think that resonated really well with product teams, but I think marketing teams have been slower to, to pick that up. And I guess part of it also the lean process, as Eric explains it in his book is build, measure, learn, and with marketing it's more like experiment, measure, build. So we actually try to do the experiment before you even do the building. So the loops, the loop is a bit different too. Does that answer your question?
0: So what's interesting yeah. about, about that is clearly it, the foundation of your company is shifting the dialogue away from what people's perception of growth marketing is and moving it more to what seems to be the fundamentals. And then leveraging what we've learned from the product world and applying it to the marketing world and maybe not even calling it that. So what, what would you call it? What, what, what would this new discipline be called if it's not called growth marketing?
1: I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think growth marketing is all right, except that the, the world doesn't like it, or you could, you could just call it marketing or you could call it startup core strengths.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I think it's probably the legacy of, of where it came from that can sometimes stifle things and, and. Dan and I were talking about the nature of that, uh, and, and whether or not the investor base, shareholders are feeling like maybe growth marketing as, as an idea is, is now, um, maybe not as, as successful as it once was and whether it justifies having somebody full time on your team that has that. And then you look at articles coming out about 50% of, of VC's funding going straight into Facebook and Google's coffers through paid campaigns. You know, that's why maybe the, the term is, it's is, is got some negative legacy around it, but maybe you can walk us through how, how investors that you're, you're working with at the moment or people that you work with, how they're representing this function within uh, their company to investors and making it a key part of what they're
1: doing. When I talk to investors, it's, it's not really about the nomenclature of, is it growth, but investors obviously want their companies to acquire customers at an accelerating pace with good unit economics. And of course they get frustrated when that doesn't happen. And there's a bunch of levers that they'll look to pull. You know, they think it's important to hire a good head of growth and sometimes, you know, they spend money on Facebook ads, but they do pretty quickly realize that, you know, you can't just keep paying Facebook. That's not how you build a startup. Um, You know, but ultimately, yeah, they, they, they need their startups to find this ability to scale growth. And, usually hiring ahead of growth alone isn't enough. It needs to start at the top of the company. It's a process and a mindset. And I think, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I, I think a big problem comes sort of around that crux of finding product market fit or not. I see a lot of startups who think they have product market fit, convince their next round of investors they have product market fit. And then when they go try to scale it, the only thing that's working or the only thing they can figure out how to do is buy more Facebook ads. And the problem might actually come back to the proposition and their ability to communicate it or something in the product market fit equation, at least at early stage.
0: Mm. All right. So let's revisit those five core areas. We talked about them as being message, metrics, focus, process and team. And we talked about team earlier when we were uh, revisiting the whole idea um, behind how you selected teams in 500 startups. And and the the idea of metrics you mentioned earlier, how people were sometimes tracking everything and then there was paralysis. One of the things that's hard, especially pre-revenue companies, is finding a proxy for revenue, right? So revenue is always a great metric, you know, are you selling or are you not? And then lifetime value over cost of acquisitions is another great metric because it gives you a sense of unit economics. But when you don't have that and you're still in that process of trying to figure out all these things, how did you help companies find the right things to focus on, or maybe one or two things to focus on that would eventually lead to that. But in the short term, they need as a proxy
1: to know what to focus on. Yeah, I mean, the proxy is people's time and attention because people are often, I mean, think about how many businesses have started in the last 20 years that just sell convenience at a heavy premium. It's almost easier to get people to give you their money than it is to give you their their time and attention. I mean, I'm selling online course now, so I've researched this. And lots of people sell online courses and then most people don't actually do them. So it's like you got a $1,000 from this person, but they won't give you five hours of their lives. So if you're pre-revenue, your metric is, are you able to get people to engage with your product or your service and give you their time and attention? And then are they getting value from that? Do they return? Do they tell their friends about it? And if you're able to consistently find people and give them value and to get their time and attention, you can monetize that. I mean, it might be tricky. Like think how big Facebook got before they figured out how they were going to monetize. But they were very good at getting lots of people's time and attention. I think that's a perfectly good proxy for revenue. Mm. And how would you answer that question if we were talking about an enterprise customer?
0: Would it be substantially different?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be in the stages of the sales process and try to separate it from the particular quality of the salesperson. But how hard or easy is it uh, to get leads? You know, are, are, are people just telling their friends about, hey, there's this thing that does that. You've got to meet these people. And then how painful or hard or easy is that sales process? Do you need an amazing salesperson? Or is it easier than falling off a log if you tell people about this proposition to get them to say, hey, yeah, I'd love to check it out.
0: Hmm. Dinah had mentioned one thing earlier about um, sentiment analysis. How much is that a tool now? There's a lot of really interesting tools that are coming out that will generate that perhaps as a proxy for revenue in the early days, but perhaps later as a early indicator. Uh, some of them are even at the level of using AI to do NLP on on social and um, customer service requests. How much have you seen the best companies using tools like those? Are we talking about uh, big
1: established companies or early-stage startups? All, all within, let's say, Series B and earlier. I think for an early-stage company, there's there's probably just not going to be that much buzz out there. Mm-hmm. And I think probably getting access to and learning how to use and deploying one of those tools is probably a bit of a distraction. It's probably just like check your Twitter feed and Google mm-hmm. yourself every once in a while. And there's a free product called BuzzSumo and you can type in the name of your company and just see what social media channels are saying about you on LinkedIn and Twitter and so forth.
0: And those are any other sort of good tools that you would recommend for people to do to track that? And how much, once you have that data, how much do you factor that in as you're doing experiments? Because sometimes, you know, you're, you're constantly trying to get rid of noise. At the same time, you're experimenting with things that you know are somewhat broken.
1: Yeah. So I guess in the beginning, you're trying to get a sense for two things, how awareness and reach, and then positive or negative sentiment. So good proxies for awareness, one's just gonna be organic search volume, the number of people who are searching your brand name or your trademark. Um, And you can just see kind of what's coming to your site. That's a big one. Uh, And then in terms of sentiment, yeah, as I said, use something like Sumo and just sort of look at it and see qualitatively what the conversation's like around that. Um, Now, when you're bigger, suppose like you're running, you do some brand work and you want to see, Hey, is that really moving the needle? So I've worked with companies where, for example, they tried television advertising in a particular market and So a few ways that we had to pick up that signal. Obviously, you know, if you're getting lots of customers from that market, you know people's location and you've not had them before and you've not done TV there before, that's a great signal. Um, Good brand work will also improve if you're running Facebook ads. It will improve your economics. So when we turn TV on, the CPAs go down, the conversion rates go up. When we turn the TV ads off, Facebook gets more expensive again. Uh, And then again, also just keeping an eye on your sort of organic inbound traffic over time.
0: Well, Matt, it's a no-brainer that personalization is uh, very important nowadays, but how do you apply it when your business is growing? How do you deliver it uh, at scale?
1: Well, I mean, I think the particulars of it depend a lot on uh, on your individual business. Um, but in any case, it's a hard thing to do, and it's a hard thing to do well. So I'd say the first thing is understanding in the customer journey where it makes a difference, which little touches make the most difference. For example, um, there's a cognitive heuristic called the primacy-recency bias, which means if you ask somebody, how was your day? Uh, They're probably gonna tell you how their day ended. They're not gonna sit there and go through each hour and be like, well, nine o'clock was about a five out of 10, and 10 o'clock was really good, but 11 o'clock sucked because I was getting hungry. So, for example, same thing. If they're gonna remember the last thing, then make sure the very end of the customer experience is really positive and memorable and sort of net promoter creating. And then the other piece I'd say with a lot of the best companies now is some stuff is just really, we're, we're just not there yet with machine learning and just kind of have the Wizard of Oz effect where some of it's automated and some of it's not. So I know a bunch of chatbot startups that'll do different services for you and the chatbot has like 90% of the conversation and then a human jumps in for the 10% where it's not working. And then the chatbot coder is sitting there with them trying to automate those cases.
0: It's it's a funny one because it- do you, are you seeing that as a trend, like the the need to be hyper-personal uh, in order to be able to have more effective growth marketing? Do, do you see that, you know, like on, on social channels and everything that, that um, I, I met a company recently that, that um, does AI level personalization on all your media assets to target your customers at the individual level. Are we at the point in the Cold War of of uh, advertising and marketing messaging that you need a tool like that really at the early experimental days
1: to really stand out. I think it depends what you're selling. Um, If it's kind of a low price point, low touch thing, you generally need to win people's trust. There's lots of well-established ways to do that in marketing, you know, exposure effects, them seeing you a lot, uh, endorsements from authorities, things, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways to win people's trust personalization is tricky because depending on the context and how familiar they are, uh, it might come across as winning trust or it might come across as creepy. And so you need to sort of keep that in mind. But if you are selling something that's kind of more expensive or up market or the experience you're selling is kind of a long complicated thing. It's not like PayPal, send money to your friend, but you know, you're doing this more complicated software as a service, then obviously, um, you know, you're probably competing with a human doing the same thing offline in which case the personalization really has to be there um, or else your product's gonna fall flat.
0: Hmm. It's a good, good way of thinking about it. So if we jump back into your five things, um, one of the ones that um, I wanted to cover before we wrap things up is, is process. Walk us through a little bit more in depth. I know we kind of skipped over it a little earlier. What does what, what that part of the
1: five step do? It's my favorite thing to talk about. So after we ran the, the distro dojo program, 35 companies, two years. I emailed all the founders, kind of follow-up survey, likely to recommend, blah, blah, blah. And I said, what was the most valuable thing you got out of the program? And some of these companies, we had one company who increased their conversion rate from website to customer by 700% in 10 weeks. I mean, we had these huge wins. We had one company that kind of cut their churn in half a subscription service, uh, B2C. And so I expected, oh, the most valuable thing was when we fixed this problem or when we found this hack. And that none of them said that. They all said the process. And when they call me back now and say, Matt, we need startup core strengths to help us with something, we need to get the process back. And the reason is you can find one hack. You know, you can go to the gym for a week in January and you get a little bit stronger, but you're not going to be strong and healthy unless you do it every day and keep doing it. That's so That's what I've been doing wrong all this time. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> all right. Sorry. So the process is the drumbeat that keeps you doing this stuff. So to walk you through it. Basically, you start with understanding your customers and their needs and that sort of we as a jobs to be done framework. And then your KPIs, we've whittled you down to a really small number of metrics, a North Star metric, and then one, two, three, four, five key drivers. And each key driver is a thing that a person, a number that a person is trying to move by doing a job. There's other metrics you want to watch, like average order value, but... You're not necessarily trying to maximize, just keep it within a known range. So you've really got this short list of metrics and everyone can attach their work to one of those numbers. Okay, then ideas come from everywhere. Brainstorms, looking at competitive sites, doing user research, your investors shouting at you, like, all kinds of ideas come in. Then you prioritize them by effort and impact. Makes sense. The easy ones that are big impact, you go do them. The hard ones, the expensive ones, the ones that take a long time, this is where you say, okay, this is a big idea, What's the riskiest assumption? We're going to build this whole feature. The riskiest assumption is that anyone wants this feature, right? Okay. What's the simplest way we can run an experiment and just validate or disprove that risky assumption before we do all the work. So then you prioritize those and then we're doing weekly sprints. So you've got your backlog, depending on the size of your team, you pick one or two or three projects and you go sprint for a week and execute as much of that project as you can and get together again. It's very hard to do a lot of work in a week, right? Even in a startup. And sometimes we let companies go to two weeks. But what you do then is you say, if I can't do this in a week, am I overcomplicating it? What is the one week work unit? Or is there a quicker, simpler way to do it? And so that uncomfortably fast pace forces people to accelerate. Because ultimately, every time you do a test or an experiment, you're learning something about your customers, about your company's infrastructure, about your ability to get traction, at scale and the more experiments you can run, like however much burn you have, you've got six months of runway, a year of runway, the company that runs the most best experiments fastest is gonna get to the goal. So you're cycling these weekly sprints, you're running these experiments, 70, 80% of them fail, 20% of them succeed. So you get together on the Tuesday of the next week, say, okay, what did we say we were gonna do? What did we do? What happened to the numbers? What was the outcome of the experiment? Okay, why? And then you've got the whole team around. You have this really good discussion. If it didn't work, everyone in the team now learns why it didn't work. They all share that learning. It doesn't stay hidden somewhere. And if it did work, great. Then we all learn about that. And then as a group, you decide, okay, based on that, what should we do next? Go back to the backlog. Is this still the highest priority thing? No, we learned this new thing about our customer. Oh, in that case, let's pick item six and do that.
0: Mm. Well, thanks for sharing that, that um, structure for us if founder wants to get in touch with you to work with you to help navigate those five, how,
1: how, what's the best way of doing it? This is your chance to promote. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking a, a limited number of clients. I'm pretty full up now, yeah. but also there's the online course available. Uh, you know, but yeah, it's my website, startupcorestrengths.com. Cool.
0: And we always like to wrap up with one question. Um, today's question is going to be, what do you think we're going to look back on 50 years from now? and
1: say, how in the hell did we let that happen? I guess it depends who we is, but I think, I mean, this is a, a very broad thing, but, I, if, you know, in society, it's clear that the difference between rich and poor is getting wider. And there's this, you know, nine point nine ten 10% of people who have the vast majority of the resources and most people are really left out and disenfranchised. And... That, that's why you see the rise of populism and election in elections in the United States and across Europe and around the world. And that is creating a dangerous, unstable system. And the way to give people opportunity uh, to, to I mean, the reason the world is changing very quickly. Technology, innovation, startups are putting a lot of people out of jobs. And that's, that's one of the driving factors in this. And you know, it's maybe I'm underthinking this, but it seems like a really important solution is to help people learn to do new jobs because mm. lots of new work is being created. And you know, as a society we're just we're not investing in that. And to me that seems like you sort of ignore that at your own risk. Mm. That's a good point. So look forward to seeing how we solve that. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to do my little part in this my business isn't this grand, but at least come up with an easy way for people to learn how to do marketing, Fair enough. Uh, which is a, a pretty good career. Fair enough. Well, thanks for joining us, Matt. My pleasure, Carlos. Always great catching up with you.
0: See you later, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.